What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Year of Plenty podcast. As always, I'm your host, Poldy Wheeland. It's 2022. I hope you guys all had an amazing start to the new year. I hope you set your goals and you're actively working toward achieving them. And I hope you guys just had an awesome time with your family and friends over the holidays. I've got a lot planned for the podcast in 2022. Got a lot of episodes recorded, have some of them scheduled. So we're going to keep rolling here as always. But this specific episode is a conversation with Craig Camp, who has been heavily involved in the wine industry for over 30 years. After learning about wine production in Italy, he has worked with many different vineyards here in the U.S., been on the board of directors for several different wine growing associations, and was named on the list of wine's most inspiring people of 2021 by the Wine Industry Network. Today, Craig runs a place called Troon Vineyards, which is a holistic, biodynamic vineyard in the beautiful Applegate Valley region of Oregon. You don't hear about many biodynamic vineyards or wines out there, so this is one of the main reasons why I wanted to talk to Craig. I wanted to hear how this is done, how biodynamics is applied to a you know viticulture context, but we'll get to all that in the episode. So as always, just for a quick episode overview, you know, we start off by talking about how Craig really got involved in the wine industry. Then we get into what viticulture is and really what makes a wine truly a wine. Then Craig tells us the story behind his biodynamic vineyard in Oregon. We go into what biodynamic farming is and how it is really applied to this viticulture context, this winemaking context. We then get into how Craig really makes wine compared to conventional vineyards, like what the main differences are. And, you know, this being a biodynamic vineyard, uh, the soil is very, very important to Craig. And we talk about, you know, why healthy soil is so important and how it is crucial in a biodynamic context or biodynamic system. We also get into some interesting facts about the grapevine you know, the actual plant that grows the grapes that are then turned into wine. We get into the wine production process and we talk about things to be aware of when shopping for quality wine. As always, this is the Year of Plenty podcast. If you enjoy the show, you know what to do. Absolutely incinerate that subscribe button. Leave a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you didn't know, Spotify now lets you review podcasts. It literally takes five seconds, so please do that. And you know what's even better is if you share this podcast with a friend. You know, sharing it with a friend is one of the best way to help grow the show. And, you know, if you really, really love it, if you absolutely love the content I'm making here and the podcast in general and really want to see it grow, you can support it with a $2 monthly donation on Patreon. That's less than a cup of coffee, everyone. And it's just going to help me keep the lights on and, you know, buy a bunch more coffee, a bunch more green tea so that I can keep grinding out more episodes for all of you. A link to the Patreon will be in the podcast episode description, so please, please, please check that out. Head on over to Patreon and sign up for that $2 monthly donation. If you want to start a conversation with me, please do. I'm always happy to talk to you guys. I've learned a bunch from you, 
And I hope you guys are learning from this podcast. The best place to do that would probably be Instagram. My Instagram is at Poldi Wieland, P-O-L-D-I-W-I-E-L-A-N-D. Head on over there, give me a follow, send me a DM, direct message, and let's get a conversation started. All right, that's it for me. Get ready to hear from Craig Camp. So, Greg Camp, welcome to the show. I'm super happy to have you on. I know we've been chatting back and forth for a while now, and uh, I was hoping to do this a lot earlier, but I appreciate you coming on. And I'd love to start out with, you know, your story. Not so much necessarily true in vineyards, uh, because I have several questions about that later on, but I, I really want to hear how you got involved with wines, um, because from what I was researching, you've been involved in the industry for quite a while now, right? Yes, uh, over 35 years now. Wow. So first, thanks thanks for having me on. It's uh, great to take a little break from harvest here and chat about things. So, Absolutely. Uh, I'm excited to hear all about this today. So, so yeah, I, I actually started uh, import, imp, by importing wine. Uh, I got into wine uh, when I was in college. I uh, spent a semester in Europe and uh, was bumming around, hitchhiking around France and buying wine. And I came back to the United States feeling quite sophisticated and realized that I, when I went to the store, I didn't know how to buy a bottle <laughs> here. So I bought a book and that sort of led me down this, uh, this path. Uh, um then we started an importing company in Chicago in uh, 1980 and had that for 20 years and sold that. And during that time, I spent a lot of time working harvests in Europe and all over the world. And uh, then when I sold that company, I went to Italy for three years and studied winemaking. Wow. And uh, then I uh, came to Oregon where I was uh, at a winery in Walnut Valley. Uh, but then I got a, I got the proverbial offer I couldn't refuse to go work in Napa. Uh, so I was down in Napa Valley for 10 years. And then the, I really wanted to get back to more, uh, a more, I guess, agricultural existence than Napa Valley. And when I had been in Willamette Valley before I was buying fruit down here in uh, southwestern Oregon, and I, I really had my eye on the area. So uh, when the opportunity presented itself, I uh, couldn't resist. So here I am after after you know three decades in in the mountains of south of Southern Oregon making wine. That's awesome. I was going to ask you if you like you know before you got into all of this, if you were experimenting at home with your own winemaking. But you just mentioned you went to Italy for three years. What was that like? That must have been an well, awesome, it was an awesome amazing experience. experience. Yeah, I was in uh, Piemonte which is in Northwestern Italy, Barolo, Barbaresco. And, and at the time I was there, it was really a, uh, there was a, so much happening in the industry between uh, traditional winemaking and wine growing and uh, uh, a modern method. So I got to see people making wine in, in all these different ways in a brief period of time. So it was an incredibly educational experience and the food was good too. Do they still have small wine, a lot of small winemakers over there, would you say? Oh, yes, yes, very much so. Very often uh, family generational type situation. And that's that's the kind of people I was working with, people who had been doing it for for generations. So it was... That's who you you want to work with, right? Right, exactly. (laughs) exactly. That knowledge that you don't want 
to go to waste or to get lost really yeah and they have uh, such a connection to a certain piece of uh you know a certain farm a certain piece of soil and they know it uh deeply and and there's so much they can communicate to you on that level because they really look at things in a much longer term uh, uh perspective than americans tend to uh, when i was there this one uh, uh winery in barolo he bought a section of vineyard that was incredibly expensive from his neighbor to enlarge it and i said well how can you you know justify such a price and he goes well like You know, my great great parent, great grandparents bought this land, and 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 for me, so now I buy this land from my great great grandchildren. So that's you know that's a wonderful wow. perspective and something we need uh, more of in the United States. I would absolutely agree, especially with our modern farming methods, and you know, just us really demolishing the soil, which I'm sure we'll we'll get into the soil and how it pertains to uh, wine farming in a in a bit here too. Right. So I figured, you know, at first it'd be cool to talk maybe about like the final wine product and then get a little bit more into the process and, you know, how biodynamic wine specifically is made maybe versus like conventional ones. So first of all, you know, you've been in the wine business for a long time. People know what a wine is, but what actually like makes a wine, you know, are there any legal industry standards that you need to follow or that a wine needs to have to be actually called a wine. So I'm thinking maybe in terms of like alcohol content, the ingredients used and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, there's an incredible long list of things when you get alcohol involved uh, that the government gets involved with. So there's all sorts of legal definitions on the state and federal level. And mm -hmm. of course, a lot of licensing and permits and, and so forth. And then even in the, in the selling of the wine is extremely Uh, complicated because each state then has its own system for allowing uh, alcohol to be sold in their state. So it's like you're dealing with 50 countries instead of 50 states in there. But I guess from my, you know, the, the, there's a, as a general perspective, there's the more commercial industrial side of winemaking. And then there's the small artisanal type of winemaking where people are trying to reflect Uh, where they grow their, their fruit. And I think that is the interesting part about wine is that it, it compared to a lot of other things, you can taste a wine and say, well, this comes from Oregon or this com comes from California or this comes from Washington. And that's very hard to do with, with corn or radishes and things like that. I mean, it's that sense of place. I mean, that's, that's what makes, makes wine so uh, important in history and in cuisine. And, Uh, you know, as far as I know, this is what you guys call in, in the wine world terroir, right? And even in the, right. in the culinary world, can you kind of explain what that is? And do you think it, so you think it really makes a difference? It, it does. Uh, terroir is a French term and, you know, like most French terms, it's, it's not perhaps the easiest to describe. But again, I think the easiest way to describe it is a sense of place is that uh, that unique character of, of soil and weather and humans come together in one place to make a wine that is unique to that area. And um, certain grape varieties are more prone to that than others. And, and but the, the thing is, is that you have to grow the wine, the vines naturally, 
for that to do that. If you're doing heavy commercial agriculture, it will tend to eliminate those differences and, and make a more standardized product. I say there, there's there's wine and then there's kind of beverage alcohol. Mm. <laughs> I like just, that. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff you see in grocery stores is, is beverage alcohol. It's it's grown, the, the fruit is grown industrially and then made with great interventions to make sure the product is consistent year in and year out. So they're more in alignment with, with like a soft drink where, you know, Coca-Cola, they want it to taste the same. You know, if you buy a bottle of Coca-Cola in, in Montana, it tastes the same as it does in Florida. And um, so that's that's important for them. And so that section of the industry is is a hyper-controlled, hyper-interventionalist type of, of winemaking, where in a biodynamic winery, in, in a natural winery like ours, is we actually don't do anything to the wine. We bring the grapes in, crush them, and they, and they ferment with their natural yeast. We add no no products at all to the wine, and it's a totally natural process. So we've actually started uh, now ingredient labeling on our wines to show that there's there, you know, there's just there's we don't add anything that you have to be concerned about. Kind of distinguish them from the other ones, yeah. You know, I wonder sometimes if that is true for, you, we, you said not corn and whatnot, but maybe it is, you know. Maybe we just don't get to taste that anymore. Right. Well, I think that's that's absolutely correct, and I'm sure that there are people that do that. There's there, there are chefs in uh, in France that they talk about this all the time. Is they they buy butter directly from from farmers, and they they swear they can taste in the butter what season it was from when when the cow was milked because they're eating different things that it gives different flavors to the butter. So well, I, I actually just had someone on on the podcast, a, a researcher, and they they have now figured out that you know the the phytochemicals that you would get from like certain vegetables and and phytonutrients, antioxidants, and whatnot. I'm sure that some of them are. Well, I know for a fact that a lot of them are in wine too. But uh, animals can actually, when they eat those plants, incorporate those phytonutrients into their meat and fat. And uh, it, it varies, you know, the, the numbers vary depending on seasonality. And he also told us that the flavonoids and whatnot, those phytonutrients, those are really what bring the flavor into the equation uh, with food. So it makes sense uh, that, um, you know, some people can go to different farms and maybe even taste the different seasons in right. the butter. Yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 I think it's, we don't often taste, uh, uh, we don't pay much attention to what we taste. I think Americans, we, we often, uh, you know, be, be, people eat like they're filling up their car with gas. They have to do it. So they, they every once in a while, they stop and put something in. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you you know, if you really take time to taste, I mean, it's like by buying vegetables from the local farm stand or farmer's market as compared to buying them from the grocery store. They, there's a whole different range of flavors. And uh, especially, I think, you know, if you see from a healthy plant, it's going to give you uh, much more flavor than uh, a more industrially farmed one. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. So for wine, though, is there like a grading system how you would see for olive oil? No, not exactly. Uh, it's more of a place name system. You know, uh, so in our case, we're in the Applegate Valley. So we're in the mountains of Southwest Oregon, about 60 miles from the Pacific Ocean, about an hour from California. 
And so, and so we have a distinct growing region here and that shows in our wines. So that's, it's more of that, that type of thing than any kind of official uh, grading system. I think it would be too controversial. They have, they have some of them in France, you know, you know, Grand Cruz and things like that in Bordeaux and Burgundy, but they uh, established those mostly in the late 1800s. And I doubt they could get away with it now. <laughs> so all, all the names, the styles of wine we have, you know, who invented those? Can anyone start a, a, a vineyard and produce a wine and then give it a certain name of place or are there any rules around that? Uh, well, there, yes. I mean, look, for instance, here for in the Applegate Valley, that is uh, American, American Viticultural Area, an AVA. And that is a le legal designation uh, from uh, the, the government, the United States government. We have, we, have, we had to apply as a group and prove why we were different and establish those boundaries. So that you'll see that. So Napa Valley and Willamette Valley, places like that, these are all controlled place names. And to be there, you have to be grown within those borders. But unlike Europe, uh, where they have many, many more regulations than we do, you know, for instance, if you're uh, make growing uh, red burgundy and Volnay, it has to be from Pinot Noir. That's actually mandated by the government. In, in an American ABA, we can grow anything we want. Uh, and, 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 and there's much more independence, which I guess is kind of a very American thing to do. Right. Yeah. I, I know from having, you know, done research in other food products like cheese and olive oil and whatnot, it seems like the Europeans have a lot more standards there, but they also probably yes. have a lot longer history. Uh, exactly. Exactly. You know, they've, you know, some of these areas they've been making wine for a thousand years. So they have a little bit of a head start on us. We're, we're a 20 year old AVA. So <laughs> we have a lot to learn. It's awesome though, that you're very involved in that. So now, you know, for the listener's perspective, most of them are probably way more familiar with the final wine product and the whole process itself. And, uh, you know, even for myself, I, I didn't know that there was like an actual term for wine farming. So from my understanding, it's called viticulture, right? Viticulture, yes. So the actual science of growing uh, grapevines. But that would apply to all grapevines, not just uh, so table grapes uh, to wine grapes. Uh, it's like any other plant. There's many, many varieties and they're good for different, different things. And uh, most vines now are, are of course, uh, um, they're clones. They're not, we don't, we're not growing from seed like mm. you would with a row crop or something like that. Like we're bananas. Cuttings like you would see like with apple trees or pear trees or, or things like that. Yeah, you see it with a lot of fruit. Uh, is there any like concern in that case uh, with, you know, diseases and whatnot? Because I know, for example, the banana is under mm -hmm. some serious threat right now uh, through some rust fungi. Um, yeah, it's, it, it, is, it is a big concern because you end up with these kind of monocultures of identical plants. So they're hyper susceptible to uh, an invasive pest, for instance, is, is something you see, especially, you know, you take a place like Napa Valley where it's basically vines from one end to the other right on top of each other. Uh, there, there's a big risk in that. Uh, so, so that then, and there have been issues and problems and diseases that have come up because of it. I, what 
the problem with a vine, of course, is is if you grow it from a seed, you're not guaranteed, or, or, or an apple, for instance, you know, if you plant an apple in the ground, you're not going to get the same kind of apple tree you picked it from, and the same would be of a grapevine. So, so we we because to, we want to farm that way, find a, a certain type of grapevine, we uh, have to do this clonal selections, and and but we will do what we'll do is have like we have 19 different grape varieties and even within the same grape varieties say like in grenache or um um uh, syrah something like that we'll have more than one clone and then divide that out over the property so so we we're trying to minimize our risk in that regard but the the, the key for everything is a healthy plant if you have an extremely healthy plant i don't care what you're growing it's going to be less susceptible to uh, um, uh, pests of all kinds and threats of all kinds, because the weak, a weak plant is an attractant. So let's talk about the plant a little more. Uh, you know, the grapes you use for the wine are coming from the grapevines. And from my understanding, you're pretty interesting plants. Are there any like interesting facts you can tell us about them? Well, the wonderful thing about grapevines is they're very hardy. Uh, it's, it's not a weak plant you know and and uh that's that's why i think it's ideal for for a biodynamic type of agriculture is that if you create a, a relatively healthy environment it, it it will thrive i mean we don't need uh the high levels of nitrogen you would need from the row crops and things like that uh a vine is very does a very good job at at, at at taking what is available and making use of it. Uh, in, in Europe, you know, hundreds of years ago when they were, the industry was developing, they would uh, plant the grapevines in the areas of their farm where nothing else would grow. Mm. So that's why you would see, you know, they would be on the sides of the hills. They would be, you know, in the rocky areas and things like that, because it's, it's a very durable plant. So our, our, our goal is, is, you know, as humans, we tend to be very arrogant about these things. We think we know more about growing grapes and grapevines, and that's not true. So as a, as a biodynamic farmer, our goal is to create um, an environment for the, the natural system of the vine to uh, uh, be able to operate as, as, as it's evolved to operate. So we our job is just to, to create... Um, you know, life in the soils, enough organic matter, and and, um, and then and then nurture them along, and then they'll do their job. Yeah, and then from what I understand, you mentioned you're really hardy. They also, I mean, that allows them to grow in many different places, and I think they're in basically every place on Earth besides like Antarctica or something There's like all that. All different varieties, yes. Yeah, so they cover a broad area. And I, I, I forage a lot, so I even find wild ones out there every once in a while. Sure. And, you know, um, I w still need to make a wild grape uh, wine. I, I'm working on a choke. I'm working on a choke cherry wine right now. I ah, just cool. actually put that in the carboys oh. yesterday. Uh, yeah. All right. <laughs> I, I hope it'll work out. Uh, but from my understanding, the the grapevines can also get super old, right? Don't they? Yeah, live I mean, really long I time? mean, uh, you have you have. Uh, so a few grapevines in Europe you'll find that are hundreds of years old. And uh, in California, where some of the first plantings were in uh, Lodi and, you can, and uh, uh, some parts of Sonoma, you can find vines that are over 100 years old. Um, 
I think that's a part of a natural growing. You know, if you're if the plant is working in a natural cycle, it can achieve great age. There's been a lot of problems uh, with vines getting to 20 years old or so and having the production fall off, and I think that has been because of the of the aggressive commercial industrial type farming that they're applied to. And then of course the chemicals and, and things that we're using, it just cut their lives short. So, you know, when we're planting vineyard now, we're hoping it can go 50, 60, 70 years. If we, if we wow. do our job, we, 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 that's what we, we would hope to achieve. And is there a lag period between like you planting these and then them actually producing grapes? Yes. So it, from when you plant, it's about three years before you get your first, crop worth you know worthwhile to harvest mm -hmm. and uh you know five to seven before you would consider you're in uh, a normal production cycle oh wow so three years isn't that bad but five yeah. to ten is yeah you definitely got a plan but you definitely want them to last a long time once you get them in yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a bit more about your current operation true and vineyards uh so you we mentioned you know biodynamic a couple times and As far as I know, it's one of the few biodynamic vineyards here in the U.S. And, and I've talked about biodynamics in the podcast a couple times, you know, but I think it's a good time to revisit it. Uh, my stepbrother is actually an organic farmer in Germany, and he's working on a biodynamic farm over there. Uh, so I'm, I'm familiar with it. You know, I've helped out there. In, um, but a lot of listeners might not necessarily know. So I'd love to hear, like, you know, Maybe you can paint a picture of what Troon Vineyard looks like, like maybe where you're located. So we just have like a, a better image in our head. So again, so yeah, so we're, again, we're in the Southwest corner of, of Oregon, extreme Southwest corner. We're in the Siskiyou mountains. I look out my window. Now I see a grayback mountain at 7,000 feet. Our vineyards at about 1400 feet on the, on the side of the Applegate Valley here. Uh, the mountains here are, were actually, um, at, close to Japan at one point and over the, the millennia, they've been, the tectonic plates have moved across the ocean and jammed them up against the coast here. So we have a, a really diverse range of soils ranging from, uh, decomposed granite to, uh, ocean sediments and river sediments from the Rogue and, and the Applegate River. So extremely diverse type of, of, of soil. We have a, uh, a warm growing climate, but a shorter, a shorter growing season because of the altitude and, and where we're located on, uh, in Oregon. And it's an interesting growing cycle for us. It's ideal for grapes because um, even though it's a shorter season, the days get very long here in the summer and we don't have any fog or anything like so many places on the coast do. So we have, you know, long hours of photosynthesis for the plant. It's got to be nice for you too. It is, yes. And so what, hap what happens is then, for that's ideal for grapes, is that during harvest uh, in October here, the days get very, very short, the nights very cool. So that's ideal for, for harvesting grapes that are fully ripe, but are that are not too high in sugar or low in acid. So it makes for ideal grape chemistry. So we end up with wines that are uh, naturally high in acid, so very refreshing and moderate in alcohol. So, so not heavy wines. Nice. And are they drier a little bit, would you say? They are dry wines. Yes. I like that. Yes. That's 
my so favorite. We, we grow the similar type of varieties that you would find in southern France, like Syrah and Grenache and Morbedra for whites, Marsan, Roussan, Vignet. So these are the grapes that are ideal for our growing climate. That's awesome. And then you don't really, well, I guess you kind of know before you plant them what you're going to get because you're picking out the variety but uh, you know that yeah a lot of science goes into that it's a big mistake if you plant the wrong ones right so you don't want to do that so so we actually brought in uh, uh the uh, vineyard soil technologies a company out of california we dug 75 soil pits we analyzed everything put it together with weather data and our own experience to select what we would grow and so biodynamic, biodynamic wine, a rare thing as far as I know. What is biodynamic as you see it? You just alluded to it a bit, but um, and then I'd love to hear how you guys are really applying all of that to the um, viticulture context. You know, maybe like how you're creating the system. What what are some of the the factors on your on your farm that make it happen? Sure. So, so everybody's familiar with organics, of course, and, and a USDA organic certification, which we have, is um, basically telling you what not to do. You know, don't don't use this product, don't use that product, don't use that. But they don't tell you what to do. Biodynamics is a, a proactive uh, system of probiotic applications. So we're doing uh, a, a lot of composting. And, and, our, and biodynamic compost is somewhat different than organic compost because we, we cure it at a lower temperature over a longer period to keep more of the microbiology alive in the, in the compost. And then we do a whole range of various fermentations uh, to develop, again, microbiology, and those are applied to the soils. And, and those are the preparations? To those biodynamic. are the preparations. And those are applied to the soil. So what what we're doing is 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 really creating these probiotics. You know, probiotics are the thing now. You go to the store, they have a wall of probiotics. Yeah. We're we're doing that for plants. So what we're trying to do is to feed the soil, and by feeding the soil, creating a strong mycorrhizal system, uh, so that the then that system can support the plant. So instead of like for compost, I don't. While it certainly has some fertilization aspect to it, its main component to me is this application of microbiology to the soil and, and feeding the fungal systems of the soil itself. You know, I really like that. Uh, I've never heard it described that way because this kind of brings like a scientific aspect to biodynamics that I haven't really thought about yet. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah that's very much on our side. We are. Uh, I, I call us practical biodynamics. There's kind of a spiritual side of biodynamics, but we're more on the uh, microbiology side of biodynamics. We're working very closely with uh, Oregon State University and a company called uh, Biomakers who do genetic sequencing on all our soils and things to develop and look at it and develop a scientific basis for what we're doing and how it's really? changing the life on our, on our soils our plants and in our wine so it's a combination of, of those things and then so we, we became uh demeter biodynamic certified and, and this year we just became and i think this is an exciting new certification regenerative organic certified and um this is kind of taking all of the organic and the and the biodynamics kind of tying them together because 
not only do we have to do all those things that we would do for, for organics, but we actually have to, to every year look at our soils, submit soil samples, and show that we are improving the carbon sequestration and organic matter in our soils and show improvement every year, not just uh, uh, that, not just that we're not taking making it worse, but actually show improvement. And then also there are animal welfare and um, human welfare aspects of it too, where you have to show that you know you're you're treating everyone properly. And the, that's uh, that's really exciting. Um, I've been looking into the whole regenerative thing in uh, for a while now, and it's. I hope it doesn't just become a buzzword, personally. Well, that is the problem, isn't it? Yes, all these things tend to get uh, co-opted. Um, I, 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 the people behind regenerative organic are, and, and Demeter also on the biodynamic side. These are really genuine people. They are here because they want they want people to become certified. They want to change the way people are farming. So it's not just a, a, a job or, or something they're doing. They actually are true believers in this and um the regenerative organic you know was uh, started by uh, uh patagonia and dr bonners and uh road the rodale institute who really financed the start of this because they want you know for instance patagonia they're buying obviously a lot of material overseas and so they want to certify those farms to make sure that that, they're, that the people are treated well, that, that they're actually organic, and and so I think and and that they're actually re- regenerating their soils. So I think there, there's a, there. Hopefully, I agree with you. It's been a problem, especially you know a lot of these sustainable uh, um, certifications. I think have uh, a certain greenwashing element to a lot of them. You know, people want to get some kind of sticker on their label, so they. They do it, and so sustainable, sustainable as a word has almost become meaningless, unfortunately. Yeah, sadly. Yeah, no, very well said. Um, I, I totally agree with that. And you just mentioned animals, welfare, and whatnot. So do you actually have animals on your farm that you're yes. incorporating into the system? And is that, as far as I know, that's like an integral part of biodynamics, right? It is. Uh, biodiversity is, is incredibly important to, to uh, biodynamics. So we have, we have a 100-acre farm here, and about 50 of that is vineyard. Uh, then I have uh, several hundred uh, uh, apple trees we've planted. These are French heritage clone cider apples we've had developed. So we'll be making cider. Uh, we have um, uh, hay uh, that we do for our own composting and for livestock feed. We have a two acre market garden, uh, with, you know, ranges of the vegetables and things like that for the farm stand. We now have uh, uh, 48 chickens and uh, nine sheep and two very, uh, uh, happy Grand Pyrenees <laughs> dogs to watch them. They don't seem like our dogs, but I guess they are. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So, wow. So it's kind of cool because you're with this way of farming, you're taking like this highly specialized, you know, thing of wine growing and you're adding on all these other awesome aspects that I'm sure enrich your life and a lot of people who work for you. They do. And, but you know, it's, it's that basic thing again, uh, by having biodiversity, you're going to encourage 
uh, um, the, the natural system of your farm to work. So, you know, the sheep in the winter, they're in the vineyard. So they, they do their sheep work. They eat the grass and they process it and leave fertilizer there for me. So, you know, it works out, it works out great, but you're, you're all the time you're building up microbiology. This is the whole thing that you have many different crops in, on your farm, you're going to encourage, for instance, uh, beneficial insects and things like that, and 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 really minimize needs for sprays of all different kinds. So it's biodiversity is the key, and also you know it really does enrich your life. It makes it a much more um, uh, exciting experience every day. Absolutely, um, I know that from my my stepbrother's farm where he works at. Uh, I I don't think he would just want to be sitting on a tractor all day and drive through these giant cornfields. You know, he he really right. enjoys all the different aspects that biodynamics brings to the farm. And sure. um, so you actually let your your sheep graze around the whole vineyard. And then what about the chickens? Are they walking free or are they maybe picking off some of those bugs? They kind of all move around together during the year. I mean, in the in the summer they're in a pasture area we have here because we don't want them to eat the grapes yeah <laughs> <laughs> but uh in the winter they're they're in the vineyard and the same thing with the chickens chickens do the same thing too i mean they help control insects they add fertilizer they just again build up microbiology and that that's the key is where you know you, you're far, you farm soil you don't really farm a crop if you're if you're farming your soil property the, properly the crop takes care of a lot of the work itself yeah so that's how you're trying to get these healthy plants by really in right working on the soil first that's awesome right exactly and then, so how did you how did you come to this like why did you decide that i want to do this biodynamic vineyard now well you know it's it's you know when i first heard about biodynamics i think it's the, probably the same reaction a lot of people have it's like what's that you know yeah that sounds pretty crazy and, um, but I, you know, I kept tasting wines. I turned it around and be, oh, that's a great wine. You know, it's biodynamic, biodynamic. After that happens enough, you say, okay, I've got to look into this. And then, and then you, you discover that, um, that, that there's a practical side of biodynamics. And, and when you're looking at, at developing soil health through a probiotic method, it makes much more sense. So, so you know, this, when we took over this farm in 2016 and been industrially farmed, and I felt you need you needed a framework, a structure to 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 build it back. And I felt really believed that biodynamics, the structure of biodynamics, was the right one. And we've seen tremendous tremendous results. Yes. Yeah, so, so how was that? Because I yeah I read about that your farm was basically totally beat down in terms of soil health and whatnot. And uh, yeah, you guys took it over and. Was it just a long process? Were there some critical yeah. maybe things you implemented that really changed it? Well, I don't think anything in agriculture happens fast. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, uh, we've been every year. We've seen improvements in the soil, you know, and 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 in in the health of the plant itself, you know, as you do, you know, analysis during the season, you see where your nutritional issues are in the plant we've, we've seen just a tremendous improvement in plant health and then in the grapes themselves when we harvest them harvest them they're much healthier the chemistry is just ideal for what for making wine and so so we've had real real experience that we can have been able to document that that 
that shows that these things are making a difference. Now, the trick with biodynamics is, you know, you have this whole range of things you're doing. Do all of them work? I don't know. I don't know. But some of them are working. <laughs> the yeah. problem is, is we don't know which one's doing, which one's don't. So it's it's not, and there isn't that, you know, everybody, it sounds harder than it is. I mean, the biggest job in biodynamics is the composting. I mean, livestock are always work, but but uh, the, the composting program is extensive, and that is kind of the fundamental uh, cornerstone of, of what happens in biodynamics. Uh, you know, the, there's the, the nine preparations, all the three of them, well, even even the third, all the two of them go on into the compost. The, the, the 500 and the 501 are really the only ones you actively spray every year in your vineyard. Can you give an example of the preparations just for people who don't know what we're talking about at all? Well, the, the most famous one, and the one you see pictured of, is, is the cowhorn manure. Uh, and that is, it's very straightforward. You use... Uh, The, the cow horn from a, uh, a, a female cow, not, not a bull. And uh, in, in the uh, fall, you, you uh, fill it with fresh organic manure and then bury it. And then over the winter, uh, it ferments. And, uh, and then six months later, when you dig it up, uh, it's totally transformed. And the closest thing I can say is it looks like potting soil. Mm. So, What was raw manure now just looks like the finest grain potting soil. So the, what, what, is it, what it's done, of course, is take the take the, the microbiology in your own soil, and then and that's been the fermenting process that you're doing anaerobically since it's underground, and then you're making a tea out of that and, and aerating it very aggressively, which to again to reawaken all that microbiology, and then that tea is sprayed onto your vineyard floor. Or, or, or your garden and things like that. So it's a, the thing about all these preparations is, uh, is they're inoculants. You know, you're making microbiological inoculants, probiotics. That is such an awesome way to look at it. I literally have never thought about it like that. But yeah, that's literally what it is. It makes a lot of sense. And yeah, you mentioned soil tests. So that's pretty cool. So you guys actually measure the soil every year. What are some of the big things you're looking for there? Uh, well, certainly carbon sequestration and or organic matter are, are, are major ones, and that's part of our regenerative certification. But, uh, you know, we, we look for the same nutritional things most farmers look for. You know, you're looking for nitrogen, potassium, uh, you know, phosphorus, and all the other micronutrients. Uh, and um, But then we are also, we're actually actively testing for mycorrhizal community and development. So those are kind of our Our keys. I mean, I mean, all farmers are tasting, testing for nutrition, and, and we do that the plant and the soil. But we're taking that step longer because we want to, we're looking to build organic matter every year, and that's kind of the key to the whole process. And and, and what biodynamics hopefully is doing doing for us as we use these applications. So with mycorrhizal relationships, you just mean the connection between fungi and my other microbiomes and the plants roots. Right, sharing right. of nutrients and all that. Mm -hmm. But you know, the the key with soil nutrition is, you say you, you you could have enough potassium in the soil, but that doesn't mean the plant is getting enough potassium, right? Because it's not available. So if you if, if you have a healthy mycorrhizal system, the, the then the, that is make they 
it processes the potassium and puts it in a form that then is available to the plant. And again, that's literally how our gut works, you know, with the microbiomes in there. Some we do eat some foods, but you know, uh, a lot of people who have a lot of gut damage, they just don't absorb those nutrients then anymore. So yeah, it's, it's just, the same with us and with the plants. It's exactly the same thing. That's so awesome. So you know, obviously, soil is super important, um, but. I'm sure it also matters like how you manage or how you farm the actual plant. So I, I've heard you talk about like in a video about head trained and bush trained uh, grapevines. Can you kind of give us some insight into how that all works and what differences exist there? Well, most people have seen a vineyard and they see all the wires and it's in the nice straight rows and the vines all go straight up. Uh, we, we've been converting most of our plants to head trained or bush trains, the same thing. And uh, it, it's just like it implies it's not up on a wire like that. It grows as a, as a bush. So the, the, the vine hangs down and that does a couple of things. First of all, it helps protect the uh, uh, vine, the grapes from sun damage, from sunburn. Mm. Yeah. But also it, it, and then because of the shade of the plant around the base of the plant, It, it, it helps preserve water in the soil that's available to the plant. So you actually have to irrigate less. In Interesting. So that's, that's our goal to shifting to these, that, that type of plant. You can't do it with every type of vine. Certain vines just aren't, aren't right for it, but we've done that with most of them. And what do conventional farmers do in that regard? Well, a conventional farmer would, they would use what's called a VSP, a vertical shoot positioning. That's kind of the classic one you see with the wires, because when you, when you can then position the shoots so you get a larger production and more exposure to the sun, but then you get much more evaporation from the soil. So, you, yes, you get a bigger crop, but it may not have the concentration of flavor, and you're going to have to use more water. And probably more fertilizer. Uh, yes, all those uh, things. You know, but water being on the West Coast, well, you're in, in, in where you're in Colorado is. Oh, I'm in Montana. Montana. So you don't have any water either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, all, like the Western United States, you know. Right. So. I'm originally from Germany, then moved to Wisconsin, now living in Montana. So ah, Okay. Cool. Um, what about like pests? Um, you know, you guys, I'm assuming don't use any pesticides. You mentioned earlier that the key is kind of a healthy plant. Um, we don't, uh, we, uh, uh, like last year we had a leaf hopper problem. So what we did in the spring is we re released, uh, uh, green lacewing hop, uh, larvae that, that feed on, on their life. So we're trying to control the populations through natural introducing natural pests. So natural predators to the pests basically right. like yeah. insects we're, we're very versus insects is that we have extremely low humidity. So uh, it's we don't have the insect pressure that a lot of other people might have. Anyway. Okay. Also we are uh, as we replant now we're moving to a full no-till system. Uh, so that, you know, that, that no-till, one of the aspects of no-till is that it also um, prevents, it pro provides habitat for beneficials. So when you get a high population and you have habitat for beneficials, it will, uh, their population will grow too. So other species that, yeah, that actually have a good, like the intended impact on, right. on the system. That's cool. Yeah, the whole, I haven't explored the whole no-till 
too much yet. Um, I, my understanding is that it just, yeah, protects the microbiomes more under the soil right. too, right? Is that you know, kind of the, the key too, you know, is that a health insects are attracted to weak plants. You know, they actually can sense the plant is weak. That makes and, sense. And so if you have a strong plant, you're less likely to, to attract, uh, pests. That's awesome. Yeah. And see, I'm learning a lot today. <laughs> uh, so what about the, the harvest season? Uh, you mentioned you're in the harvest season right now. What does that look like for you? Is that, is it pretty crazy? Well, I think like with most farms, it's, yeah, the harvest season is the craziest time of year. Uh, you know, with us, it's a little different because we have, we're picking for different grape varieties at different times. So it lasts for our harvest for us, even a farm this small will last five or six weeks. And because some weeks you're picking this variety, the next week, the next, and moving on through the season until the ones from the early ripeners to the late ripeners. So it's a, it's a long ongoing season. And then, and then we process everything ourselves here with just the crew. So, uh, you know, everything is made on site. So the grapes come in, we immediately uh, process them and get them in fermenters and on their way. And, um, how do you how do you guys really process them? Is there can you go over like the um, just kind of a rough outline of, of how that works? Well, sure. For uh, for white wines, we, we when the grapes are picked in the morning, they're in the we put them directly into the press, and we use the whole bunches. We don't just take the grapes off; it's the, the whole bunches, and it's very gently pressed over several hours. So, it's so you have a press; you're not stomping grapes. We're not stomping. Okay. We do a little stomping, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> and and then that juice is then goes into barrels for for a natural fermentation. Uh, the red wines uh, we also because we ferment. So you're just fermenting the juice for the white wine. For the red wine, you're fermenting the juice and the skins together. That's how you get the color. So those those we put in again, whole clusters, whole berries into fermenters, and then and then um, it will start fermenting naturally. And every day, then you have to go through what's called a punch down and take a, a tool and you just push it down and break up the cap that forms in the top. And and then the, and then when it's done fermenting in about two to three weeks, it's you press it and it goes into a barrel. So it's not. For us, as a natural winemaker, it's not a very complicated process because there's no additives, no anything we can we can add. So it's just it's just actually processing the juice itself. And you mentioned uh, the native yeast earlier. So are these wild yeasts or? Yeah, these are the wild yeast that exist in our in our climate or on us right now, as I speak. You know, it's just part of the you know the kind of the usual industrial way to make wine is that. Um, you, you immediately hit the juice with sulfur to kill all the natural yeast, but that makes for a much less interesting wine, in my opinion. But they want to control everything; again. they want to control the exact flavors. We're looking to the natural yeast are part of our terroir, what we were talking before, because they each add a different characteristic to the wine. So we may have dozens, maybe even hundreds, sometimes of yeast that start the fermentation. And each of them adds a little, a little nuance, a little, and it's that 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 that's like that cocktail of yeast is is unique to this site. Yeah, I bet. So you're not adding really anything; you just kind of let it ferment as it goes. That's awesome. And do you guys plant and harvest based on like based on the biodynamic calendar and all that? We try to. Um, 
on a commercial farm, it's a little harder to do than say in a, in a garden. Uh, we, we will try to hit the best days, but for example, and I always think I look at the biodynamic calendar as you're trying to get that extra little bit of quality, that extra nuance, but say if, uh, um, tomorrow is a bad day on the biodynamic calendar, but the day after that, it's going to rain five inches. Any advantage I could gain by picking the right calendar date would be to get in for the rain. So we would have to go ahead and pick. So we try to do it, but we're, we don't have to follow that rigidly mostly because you don't want dirt and all that on your grape fruit i'm guessing well i mean when, when it, if, if you got a lot of rain it actually would go up into the grapes and dilute them. oh really so that that's how it works you so you ideally want like a, 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 a consecutive days of dryness i'm guessing then yeah especially i mean it has rain here you know it basically doesn't rain for three four months so when it does get right. a good rain the, the, the vine just goes you know, it just sucks it up <laughs> and that goes into the grapes too. That's awesome. So how would, I mean, you mentioned a little bit how a conventional winemaker would produce the wine. Um, and you said that you guys don't add anything really to it. So you, you mentioned the sulfur, which I think is like the Camden tablets. If you're making your wine at home, um, what, what are some of the things they're adding to their wine? Is there other, yeah, just other stuff? Very, yeah, just a very low amount of sulfur just prior to bottling. For instance, a grocery store wine, industrially made, would have over 300 parts per million sulfur, and we're probably 40 to 50. Oh, wow. So just enough. All we want to do is just to stabilize the wine and, and, and enable it to ship and stay healthy. So just a tiny amount is what you add to it. What about, uh, is there other stuff that is often put into like cheaper commercial wines? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Though they add, they add acids, they add coloring, they add, uh, you know, it's a whole list of things. Similar to whiskey and whatnot. Wow. Yeah. Right. Well, yes. That, it's interesting. Yeah. A lot of the executives move back and forth from whiskey to Coca-Cola to, uh, wine you know if you're in the it's again it's a beverage business it's not it's not a farm right right yeah it's not it's not like how you look at your farm right. now we're looking for an individualistic expression you know you know to make something that's one of a kind yeah and that's so that's another thing so i'm guessing year after year your wine's going to taste different right yeah, every vintage is you know there's a old saying you only you only make uh uh each wine once because every vintage is, is different so yes each each vintage is a different expression it's probably uh something to collectors like too you know um if it, i like to like collect whiskey a little bit scotch at least and um, i've been known to have one or two yeah <laughs> so it, i don't know how if you get that too much with scotch uh, you know because they try to keep it consistent even, right over a long time, but I, I kind of like the uniqueness that you're bringing to it. And uh, so what does the, the aging process look like for you? You mentioned they get put into barrels. Uh, the wine gets put into barrels. Are these wooden barrels or? How, yeah, but we don't use any new ones. Like some of you, I don't, we don't want to really flavor the wine with the oak. Uh, the, the point of the barrel is it allows a certain amount of oxygen to pass and that oxygen in a, in, in a controlled way allows it to pass through the pores of the wood or how does through it the pores of the wood and just, and it, yeah. And, um, uh, you need a little bit of oxygen for the wine to evolve. 
and, and develop. You know, if you're in a, if it was in a totally uh, reductive or oxygen-free environment, there's various off aromas and things that would happen. So you need just the right amount of oxygen and barrels are ideal for that. So that's what we use. And uh, so do you have like a whole storage house? That you- we do. We're not a gigantic winery, but we, we have quite a few. Uh, um, you know, it's it, for us, you know, uh, would range for uh, a white wine would say be six months in barrel, where uh, some of our uh, more expensive reds might be two years. And I'm assuming like the longer they stay in there, the less alcohol content you get over well, time. Well, to a bit. It doesn't, they're, they're not, they're not that. They're not losing that much because you keep the barrels totally filled, you know. So it's not like a like a spirit where you're you're losing that level of evaporation. Uh, but we we certainly lose some, but not not that you would find in a measurable way. Got it. Wow, that's that's cool. So where are your uh, wooden barrels coming from? Are they? They're all French, uh, but we buy them from other wineries. Uh, so we get them when they're three, four, five years old. That's cool. And then you said. Uh, about two years, the longest one, right? The right. red wines. Um, how, in general, like for for different winemakers, what's the longest like you would want to keep a wine in a in a barrel? Like, well, that? I suppose that's there's that there's some uh, personal preference in that. Uh, I mean, you see places in Spain and Italy where they may keep it seven, eight years. Wow, barrel, but that's more the exception the rule. I mean. In general, now the modern wine drinker likes a little more fruit flavor in their wine, and the longer you leave that in barrel, the more you lose that that fruit fruit flavor. Okay, cool. That's good to know. Um, so yeah, I'd love to go or move on to maybe some um, topics that will help us become like a little bit more conscious wine consumers. I, sh- I should say. So um, we already talked about biodynamics being a little bit healthier just because you don't add as much. It probably has a lot more nutrition due to the healthier plant you're, you're creating. Um, one thing is wine labels though, that you talked about a little bit earlier. You know, you have a couple wine labels on your product. Are there certain things people should look for if they want, you know, quality and sustainability and whatnot? Well, I, I would certainly look for cert, a certification, I think is a good thing, uh, biodynamic, regenerative organic, um, because that means that, you know, it's, it's, it's not an easy process to get certified. And um, that shows that the producer was willing to take that, make that commitment and, and, and then and prove it on a, on a regular basis. There's a lot of people that, I'm sure you run into, they claim they're, oh, what we farm organically or we farm biodynamically, but we don't get certified. And, and, you know, it's, I, I think that you have to take that step and, and, and really communicate to the consumer that, that you're serious about what you're doing. Um, also, I, I firmly believe in, in carrying the biodynamic and regenerative organic uh, certification on our label that we're helping to promote that idea and the concept and, and you know, it's one thing to be concerned about how we farm, but we can control that. Uh, what, what we also hope to do is inspire other people to farm this way 
too, because um, the, I always like the regenerative organic slogan, farm like the world depends on it, which I think is actually <laughs> very true. Very and, true. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the potential for agriculture and carbon sequestration is, is tremendous. And uh, the more farms we get to convert to this type of agriculture, the better it is for the planet. Absolutely. So what about, um, you know, you often hear that certain wines should be paired with certain meals. Can you give us some uh, examples? Well, I think that that's uh, uh, highly overrated. (laughs) I think, you know, if you really, really like the wine and you really, really like the food, you're probably going to be okay. Um, You know, there's, there's, uh, there's general rules out there, but I think if, you know, you're looking with lighter dishes, you're looking for lighter wines with heavier dishes, you're looking for richer wines. But it's really a personal preference thing. It's not like a lot of these rules of the brown wine, you know, they invented it in England in the 1800s. And, uh, you know, they don't really apply too much to what we're doing now. I think the, one of the more, more important things I would say is don't worry about the temperature of your wine. You know, don't, don't serve your white wines too cold and don't serve your red wines too warm. You know, a red wine, a good red wine should probably be in the mid 60s. It should taste a little cool. I do not hesitate to put wines in the refrigerator, red wines in the refrigerator a little while before serving them or and take the white wines out a little, little time before they're served to let them to really show their own. So I think that's kind of the, the key. And then, you know, you, you know, sweet wines, you don't necessarily want with uh, tart foods and things like that. But, you know, you have something spicy, for instance, say like a good, good, Thai carry out for dinner tonight, something like that. Um, that that a little bit of sweetness in the wine is wonderful with that with that spiciness. So there's just a lot of flexibility there. But in general, you know, if, it's, if you like a white wine, drink it with whatever you want. Same with the bread. I like that. Yeah, it kind of experiment and and just explore what you like yourself. Yeah, it's that's all about what you like. Right. Um, what about the um, um, the wine label. I have one more question about that one. Is there like anything else that we should avoid when we see, when we look at a wine and we see a certain label? Well, I, I would take a look at the alcohol. If you start seeing one, you know, when you're, when they're starting to get over 14, five or so, um, th- then you may want to consider looking for something a little bit lower in alcohol because the, the lower it is in alcohol, the better it is with, with, with a meal. And it's also just a little easier on you. The more you can enjoy too. Yeah, in exactly. One city. Yeah, two glasses, not one. Yeah. <laughs> right. So uh, you, you mentioned this carbon sequestration a couple of times, and, and that's part of the whole regenerative system and, and actually taking carbon out of the atmosphere and bringing it back into the healthy soil mm-hmm. that can store carbon. Uh, so do you guys have studies going on? On your farm? Well, we're, we're early into that process. Uh, you know, uh, we really only, only fully and started the, this, this type of farming in 2017 was the first full year. So I wouldn't say that we've got hard data yet. Uh, I just brought um, uh, 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 Garrett along is his name, and he has a He's a master's degree in bioagrochemistry. So, so, so he is going to be running our soil program uh here and uh so we're really putting that data together now but we want to do that for long long range because we really want to pass this information on and again encourage others to do it 
That's awesome. Have you ever thought about like a maybe data sharing system between? Yeah, yeah, definitely. We well, we're working with Oregon State. They're down here every day, not every day, every week, uh, and they have their grad students down here, and they have testing stations all over, and so that data will all be available through Oregon State. That's cool. Yeah, because I thought I talked about that with my stepbrother before. You know how can maybe that's the answer to some of this regenerative farming. You know, how can we scale it, right? Well, maybe through data sharing in that way. Um, right. Yeah, that's cool. So, so I also uh, read that you were recently named uh, on the list of wine's most inspirational people of 2021. Yeah, well, that, that was very flattering. Yes, I was surprised that, that they picked us out here on this small farm. Uh, but uh, I, I guess, you know, again, we've been, been trying to really spread the word and, and encourage others to join us in this process. And, uh, you know, we've never looked upon it as just something for our farm. Uh, you know, any of our neighbors, they, they want to learn about these processes or things like that. Our doors are open. We'll, you know, we'll go over to their farms. We'll do everything we can because, you know, we, we want this to grow. We don't want, you know, we want them to actually change the way people are farming. So, that, that was very flattering that they, they gave us that recognition. And uh, again, I get, I think things like that help to get that, get the word out. And that's, that's our primary goal. Absolutely. So I want to hear one more thing about your 2020 harvest year, uh, because it's been a while since I read it, but when I was initially doing research uh, about you and, and your farm, I, I read your blog and you were, telling us in the blog that 2020 was far from ideal uh, for you guys in terms of fires and whatnot. And I was actually in Washington, uh, Northeastern Washington during that time. So I experienced some of them. Well, you know, the West coast is, is basically been on fire for the last years, you know, uh, from Canada to Mexico, there's been fires going everywhere. Um, Colorado, you know, just the entire West. So for us, um, we've been lucky, I would say, so far, because we haven't had any fires right immediately in our neighborhood. And we are in a, where we're located here in the the Applegate Valley, we have, uh, being this close to the ocean, we have a lot of air circulation. So even though there's a lot of haze and smoke, it's been, We've been fortunate with our crop, but that's not true for all of our neighbors. Many, many of my friends in, in uh, uh, the rest of Oregon and in California and Washington have wa- had to, to not make wine uh, because of smoke taint to their, their grapes. And uh, but you know, we're all it's not just grapes; it's all sorts of farmers are are, are suffering from from these issues. Uh, there's been farms completely destroyed. Uh, so uh, again, I guess it, it all circles back to the environmental issues that we're pushing forward is if we want to stop the fires, we have to, to change the way that we're doing things. And, and uh, so that's what we're trying to do on our farm. Yeah, I, I couldn't imagine. Uh, I think I was reading that you guys were like with masks on, kind of trying to get your grapes in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's just... Yeah, it's just for me coming from Germany and now being new to Montana, it's it's strange, you know, having to worry about the whole oh, wildfire situation. It was, was a difficult year in general. We, we had masks on for COVID and smoke, so. Right, right. <laughs> 
Um, one more thing I wanted to ask uh, that I forgot earlier was how do you guys actually pick your grapes? Like how do you harvest them? Uh, by hand or how does that? By hand. <laughs> wow. There are clippers and a basket, and a bucket. Yeah. That's incredible. And then compared to like conventional farms, does the bigger wind? Well, well a lot of people it? are using uh, uh, machines to pick now. And uh, a lot of that, of course, is driven by labor shortages. So there's been a faster conversion. I mean, because the machines are unbelievably expensive. They're probably $150,000 for an entry level unit. So you have to wow. you have to have a lot of acreage just to make that worthwhile, and it had, then it has to be flat. So it's not ideal for us, but that's not what we're looking to do anyway. But um, so you're seeing a lot more of, of mechanical harvesting going on, and I think uh, you'll continue to to see more of it. And what are um, these? Are these like kind of how it works for olives? That there's these big kind of tractor looking things that drive over the plants and yeah, it drives over the it? rows and it actually shakes the. Uh, the vines so shake scrapes off the vines it's quite amazing to see it but i'm not really sold on it for what i want to do well yeah <laughs> i mean the big tractors and all that i mean they're just compacting the soil more yeah you're burning right? diesel fuel you know we're, we're we're changing like like a lot of our our vineyard work now we'll do with electric atvs uh so we uh not only do we not burn diesel fuel um it cuts down on soil compaction because they're so much lighter yeah, that's awesome. And and less CO2 that you're exactly. emitting as a farm. And hopefully, do you think you'll get to, to a point where you're sequestering more than you're emitting? Yes, I mean, that's our goal. You know, we're, we're you know, converting to solar. We're doing everything we can do to, to lower that, that footprint. You know, and also we're, we're planting more trees. We're just trying to do everything we can do to reverse that process and become not just carbon neutral, but actually carbon negative. Yeah. That's, I know there's one farm out there called white Oak pastures. I'm not sure if you've heard of them, but uh, they do grazing operations and Turkey and whatnot. Cool. And they've, they've actually had scientific studies done on the, on their farm and they were sequestering more than they were admitting. So that's carbon great. negative. And yeah. I think that's a very awesome goal to have uh, for sure. So, yeah, I mean, that's all I really had on questions for you. Um, yeah. Is there anything else you want to share about your process that I maybe forgot to to touch on? Well, I, I just think uh, we've kind of touched on it, but I'll just reiterate, you know, there's, I, I think with by using natural processes, you end up with a much more interesting thing to drink and eat. And and if you, if, you know, pay attention to what you're, you're consuming and those flavors that you'll, you'll, you really find a new world of experience and uh you know becomes a really becomes turns your meal into more mindful events of the food and the wine are really good i love that that's a great message so before we end where can people find your wine if they want to buy some if they want to try some after hearing this well we are a very very small winery so the easiest place to find us is uh, on our website at trunevineyard.com uh, we are in various states, but we'll be mostly in small kind of uh, wine shops that are focused on biodynamic organic wines and uh, wine bars and things like that. But In general, is there a website people can go to for biodynamic wines or, you know, wines that are, have high quality or sustainable? Yeah, if you go to, to Demeter USA, uh, they have a listing not of just wineries, but all biodynamic farms. 
in the country. And I encourage everyone to, to buy their products. <laughs> they, need, they need the support. Yeah. So do they actually sell through that page or is it? Uh, no, but they'll, yeah. they'll direct you to the farms. Yeah. And then you can go call the farmer, talk to a farmer. And right. that's something I, I think more people need to do. More people should do. Don't be afraid right. to just reach out to a farmer, right? I, every farmer I've met so far is pretty willing to share what they do if they're doing Absolutely. it right. And they're willing to bring people in and, and show them and so that those customers can, can convince themselves of, of what's going on. And that's, right. I love that. Where can people follow you on the, on the internet? Do you have, yeah, I know you have a, a Twitter, right? Yeah. I mean, um, uh, just at Craig camp, C R A I G C A M P. We'll keep you up, uh, on, on everything happening with, uh, our wines and our farming. Awesome. I will definitely link to all that uh, in the podcast episode description as well. You don't have an Instagram by any chance or it's all it's all the same thing. It's right? all the same. Okay. Cool. Cool. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um I will be letting you know when when I release this, probably in a in a month or two here. Um I still have a couple other ones on the schedule. But uh, yeah, I, I had a great time. I really enjoyed learning from you. And uh, maybe I'll get my hands on, on one of your wines sometime. That'd be awesome. <laughs> Please. Thank, and thanks, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Okay, everyone. That's it for the podcast episode today. I hope you guys really enjoyed it. I hope you learned from Craig. I hope you now have a better understanding of what biodynamics is and how it is kind of applied to a Viti culture context, you know, a winemaking context. And uh, yeah, if you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend, hit that subscribe button, and support the show in general with a $2 monthly donation on Patreon. Links to all of that will be in the podcast episode description. Until next time, my friends, let's keep exploring real food together.